Good evening. Good to see you all again. Good to be back. Tonight we are going to talk about God's anger. Probably, if we think about God, the most the emotion of God that we are most familiar with. Probably the emotion that we most readily associate with God for good or for ill. Um, and I want us to see something uh, really surprising about the nature of God's anger. So first, I want us to think about this question. Is the God of the Bible really an angry God? Does he get angry? There's this whole movement among uh, people to try to uh, soften the anger of God, to make him more palatable uh, and to try to downplay his anger. And here's one reason why. This is what um, one respected uh, leading thinker of our age, a non-believer, has to say about the God as he is about our God as he is revealed in the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He kind of tells you where he's going right now, right? Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, that was a hard one, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That is what, that's, that's from Richard Dawkins, a noted atheist and uh, God-hater. Uh, at least a hater of the God uh, that we proclaim to follow, that we claim to follow. And this, see, the thing is, he is just summarizing a picture, a view of what a lot of people think about the God of the Old Testament. Now, is this true? Is this a true picture of the God of the Old Testament? I would argue that Dawkins needs to spend more time actually studying the Bible and looking at what the Bible has to say about his anger, rather than building this straw man God that he's going to tear down. Because when we actually look at what the Bible has to say about God's anger, I think we will be wildly surprised. First, I want us to to talk about the fact that, remember, God is an emotional God, and anger... Anger is an emotion that we're all very familiar with. If you, you know, uh, I think it's probably one of the first emotions that you feel as a child. I look at, I got three girls and they are constantly getting angry with each other. They are constantly uh, seeing injustices. She got more ice cream than I did. She got this and I didn't. And these injustices Cannot, cannot live among them. And, my, and my, their anger flares up. And you see their little faces. You see how their bodies, how you see it in their little bodies much more readily than you do in an adult a lot of times because there's less of it. And so you see their faces turn bright red. You see their muscles tense up. You see the veins in their necks start to pop out as they're screaming at their, you know, screaming at your sister. If you've got brothers and sisters, you've probably felt this way toward them. And if you haven't, then I'll ask your parents and they'll say that you're lying. Because the thing is, anger, it comes so readily to us. 
And it, and, and we've all felt it. It's the most, it's probably, of all the emotions, it's probably the most visceral. You know what I mean by that? It's the one we feel in our bodies the most. Because what happens in anger, when you see an injustice, when you feel like an injustice has been done and needs to be corrected, what happens is your body releases adrenaline into your system. Your veins dilate there uh, to start pumping more oxygen to your muscles so that you can fight, so that you can destroy. It turns you into a destroyer. It gears your body up for a fight. And here's the thing. So uh, if you look at fear, they've done this study uh, comparing fear and anger. Both of them trigger adrenaline spikes. And both of them dilate certain uh, vessels in your body and, and cause certain muscles to get ready. Anger pumps more blood and more oxygen into your upper body than your lower body. Fear pumps more into your legs and your lower body because your body knows, like, if you're afraid of something, you're about to get, you got to get ready to run. You need to get ready to flee. But if you're, if you're angry at something, you start to feel it in your arms. You feel it in your chest. You feel this surge of strength. And your face gets hot. Your nose uh, gets hot. Here's the thing. With, um, in biblical Hebrew, the word for anger is off. We're going to learn a nice Hebrew word for the evening. It's off. You know what off also is? It's the word for nose. So in Hebrew, when you get angry, your nose gets hot. Your nose burns hot. And so an angry person can be described as a hot-nosed person or a, gr- or a person with a great nose or a big nose. Um, God describes himself, and we'll see later in Exodus 34, as long of nose. So did you know that God has a, he has a long nose? Uh, what that means is he's saying, if you picture your nose kind of as we would like a fuse, if you have a long nose, it takes a long time for it to heat up and for the heat of it to reach your face and get down. So he's slow to anger is what that means. But the language that God even chooses to portray his anger with is he chooses to use this very bodily anger, this very bodily images to, because we are so very, because he created us to be so very familiar with this emotion. This is such an intimate emotion to us. Um, so God gets angry. We will see that. And we, what I want us to see, the surprising thing about God's anger is that it's, it sounds like it's bad news, right? To have a God who gets angry. But God is, um, anger is the emotional response to injustice. So God get, what, what, what would you think of a person who could see some horrible injustice happen to someone they dearly loved? What would you think of me if someone harmed one of my children unjustly and I didn't get angry about it? If I just was like, oh, that's fine. What would would that reveal about my love for my child? It would actually show a lack of love, a lack of goodness. You would think I'm mentally ill, I'm emotionally broken. But God, his anger is actually a demonstration 
of his love when he sees the injustices that go on in the world. Um, God experiencing anger. One thing we, can't, we have to be careful about is not applying our experience of anger, which is so tightly tied up with our sin, because we get, we get angry about the wrong things, right? We get angry when... We get a lot, it's a lot more easy for me to get angry when I'm treated unfairly, like my daughters, you know? You know, if, if, if one of my daughters is treated unfairly... She gets angry about it. But if one of my other, one of her sisters is treated unfairly, she doesn't get angry about that. You know, because anger in our sinful state is often very selfish and self-focused. We're worried about what me getting what I deserve. God's anger is not this way. The prophets in particular, uh, this is from a uh, commentator on the book on the prophets. He says that the prophets never portray God's anger as something that cannot be accounted for, something unpredictable or irrational. It is never a spontaneous outburst, but a reaction occasioned by the conduct of humans and motivated by concern for right and wrong. That's the kind of God we want. We want a God who's deeply concerned for right and wrong. And that's what we have, and that's what his anger demonstrates. So what are some things that God... Why does God get angry? What are... What are what are reasons that God gets angry? He gets angry at violence and oppression. He gets angry at injustice that goes on in his world when people are harming each other. Um, the, the examples of that could go on and on. But I, what I want us to do is I want us to step back for a second and I want us to, to see what God's anger is. I want to go to the first three instances of God's anger that we see in the entire Bible. And they're all in the same book. They're in the book of Exodus. So here's one thing about God's anger, just off the bat. It doesn't show up until 54 chapters into your Bible. That's pretty slow just to begin with, right? A lot of bad stuff goes on in Genesis. And his anger doesn't flare up at any of it. It's in Exodus chapter 4 that we see the first instance of God's anger. Exodus chapter 4, here's what happens. You've got Moses. Moses has grown up in the household of Pharaoh. He's received a world-class education. He is, uh, he des- as a young man, he desires to be a freedom fighter. He recognizes that he is one of these, he, he is descended from these Hebrew slaves, and he recognizes, I want to do something about this. I want to set these people free. I don't want them to be enslaved anymore. So what does he do? Rises up, kills an Egyptian, kills one of the overlords, kills one of the taskmasters, commits murder. His, um, his attempt at freeing the Israelites did not go very well, right? He kills, the, he kills the taskmaster, and the next day he sees the guys that he killed the taskmaster to protect, and he says, hey guys, all right, how you doing? And they go, what are you here to kill us too, like you killed that guy? Like they reject him as a leader. So what does he do? He flees. He runs, and he goes to the backside of the desert, as it's called, near Mount Sinai. The, we, we might call it like the middle of nowhere, the absolute outskirts of reality. He is out in the wilderness, and he's there for 40 years, tending sheep. He gets married. He sets up a whole life, a life in exile, away from the mission that he felt like God was calling him to as a younger man. 
And he's established this whole life. And one day he's walking in the wilderness like he does every day, walking by this one particular mountain. And he notices something off in the distance. He sees this bush or this tree that's on fire, but there's no smoke coming off of it. And he watches it for a while and he goes, it's still burning. It's just this little, it's called a Sinai bush. They named the mountain after the bush. It's a Sinai bush. It's this, you know, little bush, a hardwood bush about, you know, five feet tall. And he sees it burning and he watches it for a while and he goes, he notices that it's not being consumed. He's like, well, I got to go check this out. This is wild. So he walks over and as he approaches, a voice comes out of the bush and says, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. I want you to approach. I'm the God of your fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have come. I have come and I have chosen you, Moses. This starts in chapter 3. He tells him this. He takes off his sandals, Moses approaches, and five times, we will see five times, the Lord will call Moses to this mission, and five times Moses will give every objection in the book. So first thing that happens is the Lord says to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry. Chapter 3, verse 7. So, verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. You remember what you wanted to do 40 years ago, Mo? Now's the time. Now things are ready. Now you're ready. Now, the, now you know, I've orchestrated events where everything's ready to go. The time is now. Gear up. Moses is now 80 years old. He is not itching to go on uh, to go start a revolution. So what's he what he says is, who am I? Who am I? Chapter three, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So his first objection, the Lord says to him, do this. And he says, look, I'm nobody. I tried it. I failed. I tried it. This people doesn't even want to be delivered. And by the way, I, did, if you haven't noticed, I'm 80 years old and I have been shepherding sheep out in the wilderness for 40 years. I'm not exactly the guy you're looking for. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I love God's answer. Chapter 3, chapter three verse 12. But. <laughs> not no, not just but. Yes, you, you, who are you? He doesn't go, well, Moses, you're a really great guy. Let me tell you, Moses, you, were, you grew up in the household of Pharaoh, and you're very familiar with all the things that I'll need you to be familiar with to set up a covenant with my people and lead this people. Admin, you're an administrative genius, Mo. I need you. I need you on my team. He doesn't say that. He doesn't answer his question, who am I, by building up his self-esteem. He says, no. You're asking the wrong question. Here's the deal, Moses. I will be with you. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be a bug. You could be an insect. You could be a donkey. And if I am with you, nothing can stand against us. Listen, do you understand who I am, Moses? I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. I'm going to give you a guarantee. I'm going to give you a guarantee. Here's a sign that I have sent you. 
when, not if, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Look, you're going to go in, you're going to bring them back here. I give you my stamp, my guarantee that it will happen. And it will be a sign to you that I really did send you. So Moses goes, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, Well, what am I supposed to call you? Verse 13, what am I supposed to call you? He's basically, I don't even know your name. I don't even know who you are. You know, his first question is, who am I? His second question is, who are you anyway? Who are you? Well, the Lord gives him an answer. Verse 14. He says, I am who I am. Yahweh is the God of your fathers. He says to him, this is crazy. He says to him, my name is a compound phrase with a, a, a verb and a relative pronoun. You know, it, with two verbs and a relative pronoun. It's this, it's this compound phrase. He says in Hebrew, it's eyeh asher eyeh. I am who I am. What that means, what he's saying is, listen, everything that exists depends on something. Everything you know is dependent except for me. You just met the independent God. You just met the God who there are no limits for. I am who I am. And he says, you will say to them that Yahweh, which, which means he is, has sent you. Uh, because he, he, he asked, you know, he's like, you know, uh, in between he says, I, I, I am who I am. And Moses goes, I can't say that to them. I can't go in and say, I am who I am sent me. He says, fine, 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 fine. Tell them he is. Yahweh means he is. Tell them he is sent you. Tell them the one who is, who is at the foundation of reality and existence, is the one who sent you. Then he goes through and gives Moses this play-by-play. It wasn't enough that he just said, hey, I guarantee you'll bring them out. He says, here's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to walk into Pharaoh's court. You are going to demand that he free my people. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to hard his heart. He's not going to listen to you. Then you are going to bring all my wonders and plagues. You're going to bring all these things against Pharaoh and against Egypt and against their gods. And I'm going to get glory. Over them. And then they are going to beg you to leave. They are going to run you out. They are going to make sure that you get out of there. He gives them this play by play of everything that's about to happen in the book. So Moses responds, Ah, but look, look, the Israelites aren't going to believe me. Chapter 4, verse 1. They won't believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh didn't appear to you. What proof? What proof can I give? It's just my word against yours. It's my word against theirs that you appeared to me. What proof can you give? So the Lord goes, ah, all right, all right, all right. You know, you can feel his frustration in, uh, in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, he, he just goes, what's in your hand? What's that in your hand? What's that in your pathetic little hand that I made? You know, this little grippy thing that even monkeys have, this, this hand. What, what's in it? And he goes, a stick? <laughs> He goes, great, stick, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, and what happens to the stick? It becomes a serpent. It turns into a serpent. And man, there is a wild, we, I will not get into it tonight, but there is a, there is a wild rabbit hole. If you're, if you're feeling like a Bible nerd sometime, just really look at the word that gets translated as serpent 
And then when he goes to Pharaoh's court, here's the thing. Uh, right here, it's Nahash, which means like serpent, like a snake. That's what's in the garden at the beginning, right? He says, I'm giving you power over the snake. I'm giving you power. Who, who are the Israelites supposed to be looking for? From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Who was promised to come through Adam, through Eve, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob? He promised somebody would come who would have power over the snake, over the serpent, over the Nahash. And he says, look, I'm giving you power over the Nahash, over the snake. Throw that stick down, it becomes a Nahash. And then he says, all right, now pick it back up and it becomes a stick again. Wow! Amazing. I think I would have been like, you know, I'd like to think this. I wouldn't have, I'd, I'd probably been, had more objections than Moses. But he goes, he's just given him power over the great enemy that has laid waste to the world. And he goes, what else you got? <laughs> he says, all right, fine. Take your hand, take that hand, put it in your shirt, pull it out. Pulls it out and it's leprous. Leprosy is symbolically uh, death. It's, it's, you're basically a zombie. You are the walking dead. That's the image uh, that leprosy is meant to portray in the Bible. So he's, he pulls it in and he says, Ah, man, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm leprous. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the living dead. And he says, All right, now, Moses, now stick it back in and pull it back out. Sticks it back in, pulls it back out, and it's, and it's clean again. What has he just given him? He's given him power over the serpent and he's given him power over death. He says, look, go to them and show them that you, as my emissary, as my servant, have been handed power over their great enemy and over death. Now, what did, what did, the, if, what did the Egyptians, what was one of their chief gods, what was on top of the Egyptian crown? You've seen it in every picture of every Egyptian king since you were, you know, a kid looking at, you know, museum pictures, right? It's a snake, right? The snake is the symbol of Pharaoh. And he's saying, like, you have power over this snake. Now, there's another word. When he actually gets before Pharaoh, this is just side note. When he actually gets before Pharaoh, uh, when he throws it down, the, the stick becomes a tanin, which is a different word. Not nahash, it becomes a tanin. A tanin is a crocodile. A tanin is an alligator. A, crani, a tanin is a dragon, is what, would, what you would refer to as a sea monster. So this thing turns into this great creature so that when they come out and throw their, when the sorcerers come out and throw their, their sticks down, they become Nahashes. They become serpents. So this crocodile that his stick turned into comes and gobbles them up. It's not just power over the serpent, but the sea monster, this, this, this uh, Tanin represents power over the very primordial forces of chaos that were in the world before God formed them and ordered them. He's given all this to Moses. And what does Moses say? Woo! Yeah, we're going to do this, buddy. You've given me power over life and death, over serpents, over, over, over the serpent, which means power over the, the heavenly powers that have rebelled against you and, and over all the chaos in the world. You've given me that power. Let's go. I'm in, man. You've, you, you, had me, you had me at hello, you know, whatever. You, you had me at power over the serpent. But that's not his response. Verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, oh, my Lord, listen. I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I love this. It's a terrible translation. 
What he actually says is, so far Moses has been talking quite eloquently. Moses was trained in the household of Pharaoh, right? Remember? Uh, Which meant that he received the highest education that you could receive in the entire... He went to Harvard. And graduated with enough honors that he was put over people. I mean, he like, Moses is a smart guy. Eloquent guy. He has spoken almost poetically so far. He gets to this phrase after these signs and he goes, Listen, me no talk good. Me no talk talk good. Me dummy. And not... No talk good, no talk good before, no talk good now, no talky talky. He even plays it up, is what I'm saying. So then here's the Lord's response in verse 11. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now, therefore, go. He just resorts to a command. Go. Listen, I've been trying to get you on my team so far, but now I'm just laying it down. Go. And I will be with you, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. Listen, I'm going to puppet you like you're a muppet. You're going to go in, and I'm just going to make you speak. I'm going to teach your words the mouth, the words to speak. You know, you show up and open your mouth, and words will come out. So here's his final excuse. Verse 13. Oh, my Lord. Please send someone else. <laughs> his final excuse. He can't come up with another excuse. He can't come up with God has answered his every excuse. And finally, he says to him, just don't. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just I am out. Send somebody else. I love the Lord's response. His final response. Here's what happens in verse 14. Then. With his response, just send somebody else. Then the anger of Yahweh burned. His nose burned hot against Moses. And he... What? Pause for a second. Don't read ahead. Don't skip ahead. Look look up at me. And he what? What do you expect? His, his anger burns hot. Pretend you've never read this story before. Pretend you've never read any further in the Bible. What fought? What comes next? And fire came down from heaven and consumed Moses on the spot, right? Like locusts and plagues consumed him and he died and he just shriveled into dust. Like, no, that, that's what we expect. But here's the surprising thing about God's anger. It flares up. It burns against Moses. And he said. Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks fluently is the way it's translated. Literally, Yahweh says, I I know he talked good. And moreover, look, he's already on his way out to you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You'll speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach both of you what you are to do. Listen, Moses. What, what does he do? What is it, how does God respond in his anger? What, is it, what does his anger motivate him to do? It motivates him to condescend, to go even lower than he already has. 
The Lord shows up. How many of you have thought, man, if God would just show up to me in a burning bush and give me instructions, how great would that be? I would just do whatever he told me to do. Right? Moses gets that, resists, 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 gives him every excuse in the book. His anger flares up. And then what does he do? He says, listen, I'm going to give you an intermediary. I'm going to give you a mediator. I'm going to provide someone to be between you and the danger. I am going to give you a mediator. In his anger, he condescends to Moses' need and his insecurity, and he provides a substitute. I want us to notice a couple, one, one thing about this before we move to the next thing. Who is the first object of God's anger in the Bible? Is it Pharaoh? Pharaoh's been drowning Israelite babies. The Assyrians, back in Canaan, and the Canaanites, have been sacrificing children, have been doing horrific things. But who's the first person God gets angry at? His own chosen servant from among his own people. Later, the Bible will say that judgment, Peter will say this, judgment begins with the household of God. That's not a new principle. He's not pulling that out of thin air. From the beginning, who makes you most angry in your life? Strangers? What happens if a stranger... If a stranger stole from you, that would make you angry, right? It'd make you angry, but, you know, you'd kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you go, yeah, they're poor, they're feeding their family. What if your brother stole from you? What if your spouse stole from you, cheated on you? Like, the people that are closest to you. Because the betrayal is much deeper. The injustice is much greater. The anger comes more readily, right? We see that even with God. It's those who are closest to him, for whom the betrayal, when they are utterly resistant to him, is, is greater. There's a, the second time God gets angry, it's the one you, you expected. You saw it coming. They go, they do the plagues. There's ten plagues. How many times does Moses object? Five. Moses gets five chances. Before God gets angry, how many chances does Pharaoh get to repent? Ten. Twice as many. He gets ten plagues and every one of them is a chance to repent. Refuses to repent. Refuses to repent. Chases the Israelites out. Goes. Chases them through the sea. The sea collapses in on them. And this is what, in Exodus 15, the, uh, Moses and Miriam write a song about the, uh, God's victory over Pharaoh in the sea. And it says this in 15... Chapter, verse 7 and 8. And in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew those standing up to you. You released your fierce anger, and it consumed them like stubble. And by the breath of your nostrils, waters were piled up. Waves stood like a heap. Deep waters in the middle of the sea congealed. God pours out his anger on Pharaoh after ten chances that he doesn't repent from. He pours out his anger. And how does he do it? He brings... It's this symbolic act of decreation. 
He drowns him in the flood. What was at the beginning? Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit hovered over the waters. God brings land up out of the water. Brings life and flourishing on the land where things can live and flourish. What happens in the flood? He reverses that. Covers the land in water. Here, he does a similar thing. He takes the land that was dry a second ago, covers it in water. He drowns them in decreation. He, he decreates reality. That's how he expresses his anger at Pharaoh. The third time God gets angry is in Exodus 32. Moses, the, the Israelites are at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. They've seen God's glory. They've seen this smoking, firing mountain. And Moses goes up and he goes, all right, I'll be back when I get back. <laughs> I'm going up to get the law, to get the commands. And he goes up and while he's up on the mountain, what are the Israelites at the bottom doing? Forty days go by and they go, who knows what happened to this Mo guy? You know, you guys remember that Moses been 40 days. Who can you remember? And they go, uh, wh- who knows even what happens to him? Aaron. Make us some gods so that we can worship them. Make us some way. We, the way that we think about worship is this idolatrous practice where we take a golden idol and we use it as sort of this, as a joystick to control the gods. That's kind of what's going on with idolatry. It's, it's a means for controlling the deity. They didn't believe the actual statue was the god. They just believed that through this image they could control the god. And so they said, we need a God that we can control. We don't know what happened to Moses. Give us a God we can control. Aaron says, all right, give me some gold. And according to Aaron, chucks it in a fire and a bull jumps out. And, you know, that's, that's Aaron's explanation when Moses gets back down the mountain. Meanwhile, Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving from the Lord uh, diagrams and ex- an explanation for the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? It's the means by which God is going to be able to dwell in the midst of his people. Moses is up there receiving this means by which God and his people can now dwell together, return to Eden. And at the foot of the mountain, they're committing idolatry, which the Bible then characterizes as adultery. This is their wedding ceremony. This is God and Israel's wedding ceremony. And what are they doing? They are committing adultery at the altar. So God's anger flares up and he says, get out of here, Moses. I am going to destroy them all. I'm going to wipe them out. There's not going to be one left. So Moses begins to intercede and he says, listen, listen. First he goes down, smashes the tablets, makes them drink the gold. Aaron makes the excuse about the cow. And he goes back up to the Lord and he says, listen, listen. Please don't destroy them. Look, you made promises. He banks on everything he knows about this God so far. Look, you made promises, you made promises to our fathers that you would, make him, you would make them into a great nation. And if you wipe them out, that's not keeping that promise. And the Lord says to him, well, you're an Israelite. I can make a great nation out of you and still keep the promise. Technicality, you know. He says, okay, 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 okay. Listen, uh, he's, he's, he's drawn back on everything he knows about this God. And he says to him, What will the Egyptians think? Look, you were trying to get glory over the Egyptians and get, make your name glorious and, and let everybody know, you know that you're the great God, you're there in control. 
what will the Egyptians think? They're going to think you drove them out here just to kill them. That's what they said they were, you were going to, you know, that's what they were afraid of when they were whining in the wilderness. And they're going to, you're going to prove them right. And you're going to, it's going to, it's going to be horrible for your fame. Those are the two things that Moses knows about God. He cares about his fame and he made promises and he'll keep them. And so the Lord still doesn't relent. And he says, all right, fine. Do not destroy them. Take me instead. Kill me. Destroy me. Send me to hell. Break me off from you for eternity. But don't kill them. And the Lord says, all right, I'll relent. Because you. He says, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to take your life because you've got to pay for your own sin. But I'm going to recognize that this act of mediation is exactly what I'm looking for. And I'm not going to destroy him. He turns away from his anger because this mediator stands in the way. Now, okay, so we're getting the picture. God's angry. He reacts by providing a mediator. He's angry. He reacts by bringing uh, decreation and divine justice down on Pharaoh. He's angry and he reacts to an intercessory prayer by providing a way out. Reacts to that mediatorial prayer. Now, I don't have time to get into the bigger picture of God's anger. I'm going to jump right. God's anger in Jeremiah 25, 15 is pictured as this cup. It's this cup. For thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel to me. Take this cup of wine. So... The, the Israelites have rebelled. They've broken the covenant for hundreds of years. Uh, and, and God is bringing the curses of the covenant down on them. And he says, take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and you must give it to all the nations to whom I am sending you to drink. And they will drink and they will stagger and they will act like madmen because of the presence of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the hand of Yahweh and I gave it to all the nations to whom Yahweh sent me to drink. And then he says, my people will drink the cup. So he's met, this cup drives the nations mad and he calls the nations to come in and destroy Israel and send them into exile. So God is executing his anger, this cup of his wrath. He's executing it by means of the nations coming in to destroy his people and bring justice. Now. When we get to the New Testament we find out the most surprising thing about God's anger. How would one be saved from God's anger? How are we to be saved? We've all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How are we to escape this wrath? How are you going to escape God's anger? God's anger saves us from God's anger. God's anger, we see in the New Testament, saves us from God's anger. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who has died. And it says in 11, uh, John eleven thirty three that he snorted with anger. What did the Lord do when he, when he threw Israel, uh, when he threw Pharaoh into the sea? It says he blew with his nostrils. 
and consumed them with his... The fiery heat of his anger came out of his nostrils and consumed them. And he says, Jesus is looking at death and he starts to snort with anger. His anger, when he sees death and he wants it undone, he wants to destroy death, his anger is flared up to where it has to come out of his nose like smoke. Like Moses, God's anger... Like, like with Moses, God's anger we see in Christ's death and resurrection is surprising. He's angry at death. And so he moves. What, is, what does God do? What does Jesus do in his anger? What does it motivate him to do? It moves him to provide not another substitute, but to provide himself as a substitute. It is in his anger that he goes to the cross. It is in his anger at sin and death and the fact that going to the cross means it will be undone that he goes to the cross. He provides himself as a mediator in his furious anger at sin and death. And what what happens to him? He becomes sin. And God's anger is poured out on him the same way that Jeremiah says it's going to be. The nations gather around him and execute him. He becomes the object of all the wrath of the nations on the cross. And the Israelites, you know, they were made to drink the ground up gold from the statue, right? From the bull, from the calf. And like that, what does Jesus say in the garden? He's praying. He says, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? The cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's anger. He says, I've got to drink the cup. I've got to drink the cup so that you don't have to drink the cup. That's what God does in his anger. Isaiah 25 says this about him, and this is where I'll wrap up. He says, look, on this mountain, Yahweh, the Lord of armies, talking about Jerusalem, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. He makes this feast. He lays it out before us and says, live. This is life. This is the richest of food. This is everything you need to sustain you and to bring you joy in life. But there's a snake. I picture it as this big black snake that crawls out across the table. And he says, for us to enjoy that meal, somebody has to devour the snake. Somebody has to swallow up death. And so you see in Jesus Christ, God coming and snapping up death, picking up the snake, showing his power over the serpent. And not, he, doesn't, he doesn't just pick it up and throw it down again. He swallows it whole, takes it into himself so that death no longer is a threat to us But for those who believe in Him, death is now the first step in the resurrection. That's what God does in His anger. God's anger was directed at the real enemy. And by His self-sacrificial substitution of Himself, He destroys death forever. That is what anger is for. That is God's anger. Yes, he is angry. Yes, he is furious. The Bible says that he is angry every day. 
Why? Because death still exists in his world and he's not done destroying it. So, God's anger is not something... Yes, we don't want to make God angry. Yes, we don't want to resist him and push against him and grieve the spirit and, and harm. Uh, we don't want to harm and we don't want to anger the God who used his anger to free us from death by our idolatry, rebellion, and sin. But for us who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. His anger for us is restorative. It's it's the discipline of a father and not meant to just destroy because his anger at at our death and at everything that would destroy us has already been exhausted in Christ. That's God's anger. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for your word. I thank you that you are slow to anger. That you're not a quick or capricious God. You're not a God who uh, who gives us what we deserve when we deserve it. Father, may we never ask for what we deserve. We deserve your wrath. We deserve your anger. And instead, you took it. You gave us a substitute. In your anger, you provided a substitute for us in Christ and took that anger upon yourself, that wrath that is justly due against every sin and rebellious act and thought and word. And you took it so that we might be set free from death and experience life in you, purchased for us by Christ our Lord, through whom I pray, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen.